0: My name is Hector. I live in Belize and um, I've been going to Sagebrush for the past four years. I was involved in alcohol and drugs, things that not only broke me down, but it broke my family. Everyone stopped trusting in me. In my drunkenness, I got hurt. I mean, where I've been is like, I, I mean, I was way down here in the gutters. Before I started reading the Bible, I was always angry. I was always I mad everyone around me not knowing that I was the prophet. And you know, through the Lord, through that through that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That got to me. It's like something that like, it still gives me that chills, you know, it's like everyone says, how how did you get out of that drugs? How did you get out of those alcohol? And I told him, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Jesus picked me out of there, you know, and just got me where I'm at. I asked for him because he said, call on me and I will come. That's, that's, That's one thing you do not have to forget. It's so easy, it's powerful. James 4 said it clearly. Call him, you draw close to me, he'll draw close to you. That's all you need. And we should share our love. That's the strongest thing I can give to my friends. Going Christian is going into a war, a serious war. We battle against ourselves every day. I read the Bible every morning. Before you go to war out there, you gotta soak yourself in God's Word before you get out there. And that helps me to show more love to other people, walking in His Word every day. That's what I do, and uh, I try try my best to do it because perfection I will never reach. I'm, I'm grateful to have a group, to have a church, to where to go, fellowship, and I'm grateful to have a home called Sagebrush. Hector is just an
1: amazing man of God. I'm telling you, friends, you are making such a difference in places you've never been, with people that you're never going to meet. And we're so proud of what God's doing on our Belize campus, for the staff that's out there working so hard, for the folks who go to that church who are trying to be a light on that island. They're making a difference, and you guys fund that every single week, so I can't thank you. can't thank you enough for that. All right, uh, a couple of quick announcements I want to make before we get into the message today. One is stages of the cross. is happening right around the corner, and so you want to make certain that you make some time to go and do this interactive walking experience as we go through the last few days of Jesus' life here on the earth. Many of you did this uh, last year, and you need to do it again. It'll make your Easter so meaningful. Now all the times and all the locations they're going to have Stages of the Cross are on the app They're also on our website So we hope you'll take the time to look at those If you're planning on going to the Riverside Stages of the Cross I'm going to warn you right now If you wait till Good Friday to go to the Stages of the Cross It's going to be crowded We're not doing tickets this year. And I can tell you last year, that's when all the tickets went really, really quickly. And you're probably gonna have a long wait. So if you could go on another night earlier in the week at Riverside Campus, that would probably be more beneficial for you and for your family. And you wouldn't have to wait a whole long time to experience what we did with Stages of the Cross this year. It's new, it's improved. We hope that you'll be a part of it. And then our Easter service is right around the corner. And for locations and times for the Easter service, they're on the app as well. We're gonna be giving you folks in the room right here a couple of business cards to pass out to a friend. Maybe you've got somebody in your family, a friend that you have, a neighbor. You've been waiting for the perfect time to ask them to come to church. Easter is that perfect time. People generally will say yes to coming to church on Easter. If you live far away from a sagebrush location, we're going to be on TV. We're also going to be on the stream. Make sure you take some time to be a part of the Easter service. All right, let's get into the message today. We're doing a brand new series called Peace. Today we're going to talk about peace with God. Doesn't that sound pretty good? And then next week we're going to talk about the, the one that's the most difficult. And that's peace with ourselves. And then we're going to have Easter. And then right after Easter, we're going to finish this three-part series. And we're going to talk about peace with other people. How do we reconcile with other people? How do we keep relationships strong? How do we work through the process of forgiveness uh, with somebody else? I hope that you'll be a part for every single week. Well, let's talk today about peace with God. happened years ago. I went to the hospital. There was a couple of gentlemen who were terminal. They didn't have very many days left here on this earth. I walked into the first room. This was a person who had been a part of Sagebrush for many, many years, knew the family members, knew the friends in the room. They were glad to see me. Sat down in a chair next to the bed, began to have a conversation with the gentleman. He told me about how he gave his life to Jesus some 30 years earlier, how much Jesus meant to him, how he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how he was looking forward to going to heaven. He said, you know what To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I just can't wait for my faith to become sight. See, all my family members, all my friends who have gone on before me. And to know that we're going to be reunited again. That every one of us who proclaims Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of their life, there's going to be a day we'll never have to say goodbye again. And all the family members and friends were nodding their head in agreement to what he was saying. And there was such a peace. There was such a calmness in the midst of that situation. Well, I said a prayer and then I went up to the next floor to visit the next person. Now, this person I had never met before. In fact, we had gotten a call from the church. Someone had gone to our church, and they said, Listen, I've got a family member who's in the hospital, and I was wondering if you could send a preacher there. This relative of mine doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and I'm hoping that he'd be open to talking to the preacher about Jesus and what Jesus did for him. Maybe he would even give his life over to Jesus Christ. Well, these are some of the hardest calls for a preacher to make because we don't know the person going in and we anticipate that they're really not going to be very excited to see us because they didn't initiate the visit anyway. So I get in the elevator, and I go up to the next floor. I walk down the hallway. I go into the room. The place is packed with people. He's there in the bed. And I, and I say hello to everyone, and I stand next to the gentleman, and I begin to try to have a conversation with him. And I get about two minutes into the conversation, and, and the guy turns to his family and says, Who is this? And I said, Well, I'm, I'm Todd, and I'm the pastor of Sagebrush Church. He said, You're a preacher? I said, Yes, I'm, I'm a preacher, and some of your family has asked me to come and visit with you today. And I'll never forget what he did next. He rolled over in his bed and put his back towards me. That's not funny. <laughs> So I went around, you know, on the other side of the bed. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I've never had anybody do that to me before. And I didn't know what to say. I, I, I didn't know what to do. And so I tried to have a conversation, and now it's really awkward, and you can feel the tension in the room. And I'm trying to talk to this gentleman, and he's not responding to me at all. So it became very apparent he didn't want to hear anything that I had to say. I tried to explain to him how Jesus had died for his sins and risen again. He just kind of blew me off the entire time. I finally got to a point where I said, can I just say a word of prayer for you guys? And so I said a quick word of prayer, and then I headed out the door. And the gentleman who had called the church for, me, for a preacher to come, you know, to, to, to talk to their loved one, he followed me out the door. And he said, but thanks so much for coming. But I could see in his eyes that it didn't turn out the way that he hoped that it would. It didn't turn out the way that I hope that it would. Here's what's interesting about the story. Seven days later, both men were dead. One had made peace with God, and the other didn't. Till his dying breath, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with God. So I gotta ask you a question. Have you made peace with God? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that when you breathe your last breath on this earth, that you will breathe your very first breath in heaven? We're going to look at a story today. It's a very familiar story. It's in Luke chapter 15. It's the most famous story that Jesus ever taught. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. It's about a dad who had two sons, and the younger son comes to his dad one day and says, Dad, I don't want to wait until you die to get my fair share of the inheritance. I want my inheritance right now. This kid had not made peace with his father. Now, now let me tell you something that's true about you and something that's true about me. Deep inside of us, we have rebellion, don't we? I mean, we don't have to be conned or convinced to do the wrong thing many times. Many times, like we saw last week, it comes from our own evil desire. We want to do the wrong thing, and when we're doing the wrong thing, we kind of feel a kick of life, like we've never been more alive before. I remember the first time I, I felt this twinge of rebellion that was in me. It was when I was in fifth grade. For some reason, I was the only kid in the classroom. All the other kids were out in the recess, and I don't know why I wasn't out there with them, but I was there alone in the room. Don't know where my teacher, Mrs. Jackson, was at the time as well. But all of a sudden, I began to have a thought that I'd never had before in my entire life, and my thought was this. I think it would be fun to, to jump on every person's desk. And so I got in the very back row, I pulled the chair out, and I put on the chair, and I got on the first desk, and I hopped from one desk to the next desk, from the back all the way to the front. And then I just kept hopping from one desk to another. From you old-timers remember the video game q I was doing q right there. I was just having the time of my life. Well, the bell rang. Now, while I was jumping from one desk to another, I did not feel guilty. I did not feel shame. In fact, I never felt more alive in my entire life, but the bell rang. And which meant it's my cue to get off the desk. So I got off the desk as fast as I could and the kids started coming in. Mrs. Jackson was leading the way and I sat there at my desk as if nothing had happened. Well, she began to teach whatever the next subject was. She may be three, four minutes into it when all of a sudden one of the kids raised their hand. Miss Jackson stopped what she was teaching. She said, yes, what's, what's, what's going on? She, and the, the kid said, the, somebody, there's a footprint on my desk. There's dirt, there's mud on my desk. And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah. I said, that's not good. And then another kid raised his hand, the big tattletale that he was. He raised his hand and said, there's mud on my desk too. And then another kid said it, and then another kid said it. Now Mrs. Jackson was a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she was a strong disciplinary. This is back in the day when you could beat the kids in school, you know what I'm saying? And she had a paddle in the front of her room called the Board of Education. Thanks a lot, Ms. Jackson. So she stood up in the class, and she said, listen, I don't know who was walking on the desk, but one of you was walking on the desk, and if you'll come clean right now, I'm only going to give you two swats. Two swats. That's where you bend over, grab your ankles, and you pray to Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want two swats. I don't even want one swat. So I'm looking around the room like, yeah, I wonder who was walking on everybody's desk. I tell you what, that's a terrible thing right there. Was it you walking on the desk? I tell you what, that's terrible right there. Nobody came forward. So Mrs. Jackson should have been a part of CSI because you know what she did next? She got a ruler out. She went over to the desk and she began to measure the circumference and the width and the height and the length of the, of the, of the footprint and the tread of the footprint. And she went from one desk to another to another, and then I'll never forget it. I was scared to death. She went from one shoe to another shoe to another shoe. Now, thankfully, thank you, Jesus, all of us were about the same size, same shoe size, and most of us had the same tread, so she could never figure it out. And, in fact, she died last year. This is the first time I've ever told that story. Had to wait till she died for me to tell that story. You understand what I'm saying? It was the longest afternoon of my entire life. There's something inside of us that wants to rebel. This young kid says, you know what? I don't want to live on my dad's farm. I want to do my own thing. I want to go in my own direction. I think my dad's kind of messing with me. I, I think he's holding out on me. I think there's something better out there for me. And so he decides and he goes to his dad and says, hey, I want my share of the inheritance now. And then he goes off to a distant land, doesn't he? Because he doesn't want his dad to see what he's going to do. I was reading a book by John Ortberg the other day, and he said the most common prayer that's ever prayed. Of course, we would never admit that we would pray this prayer. We've never even said this prayer out loud, but in our heart, in our soul, we've said it more times than we can count. The prayer goes something like this, don't look at me, God. It's right before we do the wrong thing. It's right before we go the wrong direction. It's right before we end up in the place that we shouldn't be, doing the things that we shouldn't do. First, we have to pray a little prayer, don't look at me, God. And that's a little prayer that Adam and Eve must have prayed in the Garden of Eden. Standing next to the tree that God told them not to mess with. And it went once along and the serpent comes up and says, hey, why don't you take that fruit? You'll be just like God. But you first before they took that fruit, didn't they have to pray a little prayer? Don't look at me, God. It, it's, the, it's the businessman who's traveling and he checks into a hotel. And it's late at night and he can't go to sleep and he's flipping through the channels on the TV and he sees an adult movie channel that's there with a disclaimer. The disclaimer says that on your bill, we won't state what movie you watched. It'll just say that you watched a movie. He's tired. He wants a little entertainment. Before he makes his purchase, doesn't he have to say a little prayer? Oh, he doesn't say it out loud. But in his heart, he says, don't look at me, God. There's a a woman, a mom, whose life hasn't turned out the way that she hoped that it would, and she berates her kids. She's just as mean as she can be. And she's condescending and she's cutting with her words. And, and she needs alcohol to get through her day. She needs a drink to take off the edge, to help her forget. Well, before she opens up that bottle, before she opens up her mouth, doesn't she have to say a little prayer first? Don't look at me, God the executive who pads his expense account, the employee who can't wait to throw another employee under the bus, the kid who goes to school and cheats off somebody else's test, the person who just can't wait to spread that juicy piece of gossip or lie and exaggerate and make themselves look bigger than they really are. Don't we all have to pray a little prayer? Don't look at me, God kid comes up to his dad and says, Listen, Dad, I'm not going to wait around for you to die. I want my fair share of the inheritance, and I want it right now. I've got big plans for my life, and they don't include you. And here's the shocking thing about the story that Jesus tells is the dad gives him the money. Now, for a long time, I never could figure out why in the world did the dad give him the money. I would have looked at that kid and said, Well, you can go, but I wouldn't have given a dime. Why did he he give him money? Why did he let him go in this manner? I think the dad knew something. He knew that if he kept his son there against his will, that his son would learn to hate him. That his son would despise him and become filled with bitterness and anger towards him. And I think the dad was wise enough to know that sometimes you got to let somebody go their own way before they come to their senses. And that the only chance that dad ever had of having a relationship with his son was to let him find out that life apart from the father isn't everything that he thought it would be. The only chance he had of having a future relationship with this kid was to let him go today. And can you imagine how hard that must have been for the dad as the kid's packing up his bag? And then when he storms out the front door to go live his life the way he wants to live his life apart from you because he doesn't care about you, doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. I just imagine that poor dad's heart breaking into a million pieces, don't you think? Well, things begin to turn out pretty good for the kid to start with. I mean, he goes off to a distant land. He's got money to burn. He's got friends. And he's having a great time. And that makes sense because sin is fun for a season, right? Right? I mean, if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. But let's say for what it is, sin is a lot of fun, especially in the beginning. The drugs were fun for a season, weren't they? (laughs) First time you smoked that marijuana joint, first time you got high, first time you popped that pill. Oh, that felt good, didn't it? But now you find yourself that you need it. And that you can't even control your emotions anymore unless you're high. And you feel like those drugs have got a grip on you rather than you having a drip on those drugs. It was fun for a season. Not so fun anymore. Remember when you were in high school and they'd invite you over to a party and there'd be a keg there and there'd be vodka there and everybody'd get smashed and trashed. And it was a lot of fun. Remember your college days, the fraternities, the sorority parties? Oh, man, people were going absolutely nuts. They were bonkers, weren't they? Oh, it was so much fun. My goodness, that was 20 years ago. But you don't go to parties anymore to get drunk. No, you get drunk at home alone because you need it. You can't function without it, but you wish you could. You wish you could get rid of all of it. It was fun for a season, but now it's taking control of your life. It was fun in the beginning in your relationship, wasn't it, when you started having sex with your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Oh, that's a blast right there. That's a good time. But here's the question. Is it fun every single month when you're waiting to find out whether you're pregnant or not? When your time of the month comes late? And if you're a follower of Jesus, is it fun living with the guilt? Living with the shame? Living with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, convicting you of what you've done. And at, and at what point does a girl or a guy come to their senses and say, you know what, maybe this is an honoring of God. At what point does the girl start, you know, kind of wake up one day and go, you know, maybe he's just with me for what he can get from me. Because I don't think he has any intention of being with me for the rest of his life. I don't think he loves me in such a way that he wants to give me his last name. It was fun for a while, but it's not so fun anymore. That's the way it was for this kid. He goes off to a distant land. He's got money to burn. He's got brand new friends. Everything is great, but then he runs out of money. I mean, he runs out of money. His friends run away, too, and then the Bible says this. There was a famine in the land. what, What does that mean? It means hard times came. Why did hard times come upon him? Because God was trying to draw him back. Let me tell you a little secret that's not really a secret at all. God will do whatever he has to do to get your attention. I mean, he'll let you go off and do whatever you want to do for a season. He doesn't want you to. He'll (laughs) convict you the whole time you're doing it. But he'll start to do things in your life to try to draw you back again. There was a little boy. He had a boat. He built the boat, painted the boat, loved the boat, named the boat. Took it out to a lake one day, put the boat on the lake, and the boat began to drift away. Well, the wind came and blew that boat farther away than the little guy could get it. and He was very sad because he really wanted his boat back again. He began to cry. A man who was there on the shore saw what was going on. He went over with a pocket full of rocks and began to throw rocks on the other side of the boat. And with every time the rock would hit, it would cause a ripple, a wave, and the boat would slowly start to come back. It was the ripples, it was the waves that was bringing the boat back to his rightful owner. Isn't that what God does in our life? Storms come. Things to get our attention. they are waves. they are ripples. In an attempt to bring us back to the love of God. You know what the problem is for many people? The rock hasn't been big enough. The storm hasn't been great enough. You ever look at somebody and you know their life's out of control and, and you feel bad for them and you pray for them and you think, I wonder when they're finally going to realize that that's not the way to live your life. I mean, they're so empty and they're so lonely and, and, and it's so obvious that they're longing for something of greater value, of greater worth, right? And yet, they just won't, they won't repent of their sin. They, they won't turn away from what they've done. They won't turn their life over to God. And so what do you pray for them? Maybe you pray the same thing I pray for them. I pray that a huge rock would come into their life that would bring them back to Jesus. The problem for many people is they don't think their sins that big of a deal. What they're doing is not as bad as somebody else or somebody else. And they're doing just fine on their own. And so what we do as a result of this is we continue down the path that we always went on, feeling the emptiness. My question to you is, is how low do you have to go before you come to your senses? Because for this kid, he's already run out of money. He's already lost all of his friends. He's in the midst of a famine. He's penniless. He's poor. He doesn't have a job. You would think in this story that's about the lowest point he could get to, right? That all of a sudden he would realize and come to his senses, my goodness, I need to go back home again. But here's the interesting thing about sin. It brings about stubbornness, doesn't it? We don't like to admit when we failed. We don't like to admit when we blow it. We certainly don't like to admit when somebody else was right, even if it's God is the one that is right. So this kid hasn't hit rock bottom yet. Oh, no, no, no. He begins to look for a job. The only job he can find is a job slopping pigs. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus is talking about a Jewish kid. No self-respecting Jewish kid would ever slop pigs. But this kid has finally hit so low. That's what Jesus is saying. This kid's lost everything everything and he's sitting there and he's watching these pigs eat the slop and guess what he wants what they're eating then the Bible says this in Luke 15 verse 17 when he came to his senses All of a sudden, he began to realize the error of his ways. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Son realizes what he's done, and so he thinks to himself, I'll just go back home. But he's not certain that he'll be greeted when he comes back home. He's not certain that he'll be forgiven. And the people who are listening to the story on this particular day, they're not certain either. Did you know there was another ancient story that was circulating during this time that was very similar to the one that Jesus was sharing on this day? On this particular story, it was about a son who had a dad, and the son got with some newfound friends and decided to rob his dad. In fact, they convinced him to rob his dad. Well, guess what? They robbed the dad. It was successful. And the newfound friends took off with all the dad's money, leaving the son to face the dad himself. Well, the kid comes clean, realizes the error of his ways, comes to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against heaven, against earth. I've sinned against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. And the father is gracious. He says, oh, son, I forgive you for what you've done. Let's throw a banquet. Sound familiar to any other story you've ever heard? So they come together, all the family, the neighbors, the friends. They all gather together for the great banquet. And at the end of the banquet, the dad raises his glass to have a toast to his son. And he asks everyone to drink. And they all do. And then the son grabs his throat and falls down on the table and dies. His dad had poisoned his son because of the disgrace that he was to the family. That's how everybody thinks this story's going to go. And some of you today, some of you at home watching, that's how you think it's going to go. Oh, you screwed up bad. You know you have. And you have guilt, and you have shame, but you won't come to God. Little shocked that you're watching me right now. Little shocked that you're here in this room. You don't want to come to God. How many times you sat here and had the opportunity to ask Jesus in your life? You pushed him away again and again and again. How many times as a Christian you knew you were doing the wrong thing and yet you wouldn't come clean? Why? Because you think God's out to get you. You think God wants to condemn you. That God wants to to slam you. But that's not what the Bible teaches here. That's not the story that Jesus is giving about the heart of, of God the Father. Look at this, 2 Peter chapter 3, it says he's patient with you. God is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What does repentance mean? It means to do an about-face, to turn around, to come home. God wants everyone to come home. And not to slam you, not to condemn you, but to love you and forgive you and give you that new lease on life that you have longed for for so very, very long. Well, the kid's slopping pigs. He says, oh my goodness, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore after all that I've done, but maybe my dad will be gracious to me and he'll make me like one of his hired men. So he comes up with a little speech. Father, I've said against heaven and against earth, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he plays every scenario in his mind as to how his dad is going to respond. The one scenario he never plays in his mind is the one that actually happens. Luke 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father ran to him. When Jesus told that story, that sent shockwaves to the crowd. No Middle Eastern man of dignity would ever run. Great men don't run. Great men are run, too. What's the picture that Jesus is painting here? God the Father doesn't care. He didn't care what everybody else thinks. He didn't care what else says. You take one step towards him, he comes running for you. And not to condemn you, but to save you from yourself, to forgive you. And it's such a beautiful scene. That's why it's one of the most favorite story in all the Bible, right? You see the dad run into the son. The son is shocked at what's happening. And so the son gets ready to tell his little speech. Hey, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. Against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And guess what? He didn't even get the speech out. The dad just grabs his son up and holds on to his son. And he probably says to his son again and again, I love you, I love you, I love you. I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. Because how many days had the dad been looking out over the horizon, looking for his lost son? How many weeks had he been standing there? How many months had he been standing there? And when he saw the silhouette of his son coming in the distance, he couldn't contain himself. He ran to his son. He picked his son up. He held on to his son. He said, put a robe on him. What's the robe represent? This is my son. Put a ring on his finger. It's a symbol of authority. Put shoes on his feet. It's a symbol of freedom. And then he looks at everybody and says, we're having beef tonight. We're throwing a party because this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And that's the heart that God has for you. And she'll take one step towards him. He'll run to you with his arms wide open. And some of you need to hear that because you came in here with so much guilt and so much shame and so much emptiness and so much distance between you and God. You've been playing games with God for so long and you are certain that you're too messed up, too far gone. It's just not true. It's just not true. Now, here's the sad part. Some of you don't feel that way at all. Some of you involved in stuff you shouldn't be involved in. And it doesn't bug you. And you tell yourself, hey, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And it's not like I did what so-and-so did. And this isn't that big of a deal. And God will forgive me anyway, right? I was reading a book by David Platt. He says, if you sin against a log, you're not very guilty, are you? On the other hand, if you sin against a man or a woman, then you are guilty. And ultimately, if you sin against a holy and eternal God, you're infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. You see, the penalty of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one that we've sinned against. Let me explain. David tells the story of a guy named Azim. Azim was a follower of Christ in the Middle East. He was on a taxi cab ride. He was trying to explain to the guy his need for Jesus. And the taxi cab driver said, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I figure I'll go to hell for a few years and pay for my sins, and then eventually I'll work my way up into heaven. And so Azim asked him the following story. He said, if I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? And the taxi cab driver said, I'd kick you out of my taxi. He said, if I got out of your taxi and I slapped one of the people walking by on the sidewalk in the face, what do you think would happen to me? He said, I think that guy would get his friends together and they'd beat you up pretty good. He said, if I slapped a police officer in the face, what do you think he'd do to me? <laughs> he said, he'd beat you and then he'd throw you in jail. He said, if somehow I got a meeting with the king and I slapped the king across the face. What do you think he'd do to me? And Azim said, <laughs> the taxi driver said, well, uh, you'd be dead. Then Azim said this, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one we sinned against. Who do we sin against? the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So you think your sin isn't that big of a deal. The wages of sin, the payment for your sin, is death. You will be eternally separated from God forever. Or you can come to your senses. And you can accept the payment that Jesus made for you on the cross by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. For God so loved the world, so God so loved you that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you from yourself. What's Jesus saying here? It's time to come home. Take one step towards him. He comes running for you. To love you and forgive you. To fill the emptiness inside of you. And he's the only one that can do it. What are you going to do, friends? Keep running? Or run home? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to come to our senses. Help us to stop justifying our sin and acting like it's not a big deal. Help us to realize the debt that we owe you, a debt so great we could never pay for it ourselves. Help us to understand that you paid that debt by sending Jesus to die for us. Lord, for all the stubborn hearts that are here in this room and at home watching, thinking we're not that bad, may we understand that we have severely underestimated the damage that our sin has brought. And it's time to come clean. And it's time to come home. So Lord, I pray for a moment of courage. Because we're going to give folks an opportunity, Lord, to come home to you. And I pray, God, that at least one person in this room or at home would finally say, I'm done with running. I need Jesus in my life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.